today's scripture is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. And in view of this, we always pray for you that our God will consider you worthy of his calling and will, by his power, fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. How are you doing today? Good. I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Good to see y'all. Um, I'm going to start us off just a little bit differently uh, this morning. playing there, did you? <laughs> I did, probably like many of you, take piano lessons growing up. So I played a lot of piano growing up. In fact, I played a lot of different instruments. I tried a whole lot of things out. I tried out the guitar. I played a lot of different percussion. In fact, one year, I played and even performed in front of people with the steel drums. Little steel drums, anybody? But mostly, I played the piano and the saxophone. Those were like my two instruments that I uh, stuck with for the longest. Now, I consider myself a fairly hard worker. I had multiple paper routes by the time I was nine years old. I was applying for jobs out in the town by the time I was 14. I was working full-time by the time I was 16. But I do not have, or at least I did not have, very much self-discipline when it came to things like whatever I had to do at home for practice, like homework, doing that kind of thing at home, or, you know, practicing an instrument, which is not good because I was in the school band for years. <laughs> and the school band has to perform at different places, right? Like we would perform at the mall, we would perform at the school, we'd perform out the local plaza area, and when you're performing with a band, you kind of have to know what the music is. You have to practice it and prepare and all that kind of stuff, and I really just did not have the discipline for that. Now, if in the band I was playing the saxophone, I actually had to know what I was doing because the saxophone is loud, and there's not too much you can do about how loud it is, but <laughs> I confess to you <laughs> that when I was on the keys, I would regularly turn the volume down on my keyboard <laughs> because I didn't know the song and I couldn't play along with everybody else. And nobody really noticed except for probably the band director who wasn't too happy with me about that. Everybody else was a part of what was happening. They were playing the music, but I wasn't really participating at all. I wasn't engaged in what was happening. It wasn't really a reciprocal act. I was receiving from everybody else 
but I wasn't really contributing to what was happening either. This idea of uh, reciprocity or something that is reciprocal, right? There's, that's the idea of there being some give and take, right? Some push and some pull, some exchange between individuals. And there are different kinds of reciprocity. Like It's not all the same. Sometimes it's very equal, right? You have signed agreements that are reciprocal. You, you get this and I get this and that's how it works. But there are other kinds like there are, there are altruistic aspects of reciprocity as well. So I might do something not expecting anything in return, thinking that if the tables were turned and you were in my position, you would do the same for me. I'm not actually getting something in return, but I'm trusting that you would do the same as well. So there's always some sort of exchange or push or pull in reciprocity. Prayer actually is a reciprocal act. There are two that are involved in it, at least two, right? There's God and there's you, and there's a back and forth that can happen there. Now, I'm going to channel my wife right now because she would say, well, what does that actually look like for you, Mike? And that's a really good question, hypothetical Stephanie. Just joking. She actually really did ask that question. That, I don't want to give the impression that being, having prayer as a reciprocal uh, act is that you always experience the reciprocity of it. Honestly, prayer often feels pretty one-directional, right? It feels pretty one-sided, or at least it does for me. In my own life, I feels like I'm talking a lot, and I'm trying to listen, but it's not like I'm hearing a voice from God all the time. It's not always conversational in that way. Or maybe we have a sense that we know God is trying to get our attention and we're just like, eh, I'm not engaging. I'm not going to participate in that. So we might even have a sense that prayer doesn't feel reciprocal one way or the other. But I think by its nature, it is actually a reciprocal act. There are two there and there is an interaction that is taking place. Now we've been talking about prayer all summer, uh, lots of different ways to think about prayer, aspects of prayer. You think about like confession, or we talked about silence and solitude. We talked about a lot of different things. But as we approach the end of this series, we have one more week left. The last few weeks, we're looking at apostolic prayers. So basically, we're looking at examples of prayers in the New Testament and seeing how they can shape our own prayers? How can they inform our own prayers? And today we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to pull one out or on your phone, pull up 2 Thessalonians so you can follow along. If you don't have a Bible, we have some right in the back. Just raise your hand and usher will bring you one and you can take that home if you don't have a Bible at home. Uh, but follow along in 2 Thessalonians. And here we're going to see a letter from Paul and Silas and Timothy to the church that's in Thessalonica, and they're undergoing some hard circumstances. They're facing some persecution. They're, they're suffering for their faith. And in the midst of this writing, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they write out this prayer that we're going to see. And we're going to notice today that not only is prayer a reciprocal act, but actually our entire experience of faith is a reciprocal act. Life with God is reciprocal, which doesn't mean that it's equal, right? 
God far outgives us. In all ways, he outgives us. But that doesn't mean that we aren't participants in the relationship. It doesn't mean that we're not engaged in it. When God enters into our lives, we participate and we turn the volume up a little bit to be able to respond to God. So before we talk about our relationship with God, though, as a reciprocal act, we have to lay a pretty strong foundation here. And in order to do that, we're going to go to the end of our passage rather than the beginning. So if you've got 2 Thessalonians, look at verse 12. And after everything that's been said here so far and everything that's in the prayer, it says, uh, it says, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything in that prayer is according to grace. Everything that we're going to look at today is according to grace. And in fact, everything in our experience of God is according to grace. And according to grace means that it's governed by grace. Now, grace is favor that we have from God. It's God's favor toward us. But this favor isn't toward us because we're so wonderful and great and deserving of all of it. And, you know, it's, it's not like we have it coming to us. It's this completely unwarranted favor that enters into our lives, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. And everything that God does toward us in any way is according to grace. So grace is something that's freely offered, but grace is also pretty radical. Or another word that a lot of theologians use is it's disruptive. God's grace is disruptive in our lives. Maybe you've uh, heard kind of the phrase or term disruptive innovation. So we talk about sometimes, you know, innovations that have been disruptive, which means that they've really kind of changed society in some way. Maybe they've changed the marketplace. Maybe they've really just kind of changed how we operate or function in our day-to-day -day lives. Just some modern examples of some disruptive innovations would be Netflix, Netflix. Uh, that was pretty disruptive. If you don't think so, just ask Blockbuster. Uh, you can still ask them because there's one more store in Bend, Oregon, the last one ever. Or how about Facebook? Facebook and social media, that was all pretty disruptive in a lot of ways, right? That created some su substantial changes. The iPhone, that was a big change. All the smartphone technology that came after that, not so much the stuff before, sorry, Blackberry. And then... AI innovations. This is a, <laughs> this, I went to a, a AI image generator <laughs> and I typed in uh, church under construction and this is what it produced for me. <laughs> Don't worry, our church is not gonna look like this after construction is done. <laughs> you look at like, I think those are supposed to be crosses at the top of all those spires, but they're more blob-like. I don't know if they're really crosses. So maybe, maybe AI isn't quite so disruptive. Uh, but it's cute, right? It's cute. Yeah, there we go. 
all these things so uh, came into our lives, right, that they captured our attention and our engagement and the way that we lived our lives. And that's the way God's grace is. God's grace is freely given to us. It disrupts our lives, but because it's actually reciprocal, it creates a response in us. And it makes us, it should draw our attention and our engagement and the way that we live our lives. This is actually the gospel. God enters into our lives undeservedly on our part. We experience that grace, we respond, and we're transformed by it. We're changed by it. We're affected by it. So this foundation of grace is really important because the first sentence in this prayer might ruffle our feathers just a little bit. So let's take a look at that in verse 11. They say, and in view of this, in view of everything they've written so far, we always pray for you that our God will consider you worthy of his calling. Will consider you worthy of his calling. As if there's a question in it. Now this translation renders it that way. You might be looking at a different translation and maybe yours says something like, God will enable you to be worthy or God will make you worthy, which is theologically accurate, but it's not what this is saying here. The word that's being used here is very much one of consideration and evaluation. God is evaluating and considering if the Thessalonians are worthy. Does that rub any of you the wrong way? If yes, why? Share an answer. Why does it rub you the wrong way? Thought it was a God of love and loved everyone. So wait, is there a chance that God's not going to love me then? What is that consideration that he's giving there? Good, good response. Yeah, anything else? Come as you are. Right, like wait a second. Do I have to change in order to be considered worthy by God? What is it that goes into, what are the factors that are a part of that consideration? I mean, I should be able to come as I am. I'm kind of like innately worthy, right? I mean, I think I am, right? Isn't that part of who I am? I mean, it's certainly a part of us to need to feel a sense of worth, right? We need to feel a sense of worth. One of Steph's best friends, Amy, um, we were all living out in Newburgh and in that community at, uh, several years ago, uh, there were a number of suicides that were happening and, and primarily younger people who were committing suicide and taking their lives and uh, after a, a recent one uh, that happened, uh, Amy felt like something's got to happen here. You know, this has to be addressed why is this happening in our community? 
And so she and her family went out and they bought 20 signs and had printed messages put on these signs and they went around to their neighbors and to businesses and said, hey, can we put these signs in front of your house or in front of your business? And very quickly, what they did ended up getting on social media and getting passed around and people were like, who's doing this? What organization is affiliated with this? Like, what is, what's the source of this happening? And there was no organization. It was just this family seeing what was happening in our community and wanting to address it in some way. And as it went around and got viral on social media, the signs just started going everywhere. In fact, these are the signs, some examples of them. You matter. Your mistakes do not define you. You are worthy of love. Don't give up. How many of you have seen those signs before? Yeah. That's because they're everywhere now. In fact, they are international. They ship these signs all around the world, and they're in all 50 states, I think, as well. And it all just started from maybe going out there and saying, something's got to happen in our community. Humans need to be loved. We just need that. It's a core aspect of who we are. We need some sense of affirmation. We need some sense that we are worth something. But our society is so broken right now that we have this message swirling around all the time, whether we're recognizing it or not, that we're really not worth a whole lot. And there are a lot of factors that play into that, more factors than I could probably say right here. But you have to think about things like social media. We've talked about social media by the data has had a very negative influence on people's psyches. You think about technology, addiction, you think about loneliness, which we've talked about as well. You think about the, uh, the lack of trust, the decreasing trust in institutions in the world or in objective truth. So there's no longer things for people to grab onto to be able to have any stability in their lives. And instead, we all just kind of swim around in some sense of anxiety. And all of that causes us to go, what is going on here and why am I here? And do I have any worth? Do I have, what is it that I'm really contributing here? What am I a part of? And then there's some aspects of our society. I don't know how to, I don't know how to say this well. I don't know if it's even right the way that I'll say it. So I'm just going to ask for your grace when I say it, because there are also then to counter that, we all feel this sense of unworthiness to some degree. And so our, we also counter that then with a message of all things are worthy. Everything is worthy. Nothing can be scrutinized. Everything and everybody worthy. Now, everybody is worthy, but what are the qualifications or what is the substance of that worthiness? So all of that is swirling around in our society and then we read a passage like this and we say, wait a second, I'm gonna be considered worthy or not? We can't just throw this passage out, though, but we also can't read it like it's the only thing that God has ever said to us or ever communicated to us. God has demonstrated 
his love to humanity by sending Jesus, his son, to die on our behalf that we could have life in him. And he did this while we were his enemies. So we have a pretty high worth to God, right? We have a pretty high worth to God. You just have to look a little further in 2 Thessalonians as well, and you can see Paul and Silas and Timothy offering this kind of encouragement to the Thessalonian church. Chapter 2, verse 16. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. We have to understand the context that we're reading in here, the immediate context and the greater context, but you can get even closer to our passage to get some context on this as well. Because earlier on in verses four and five, they say something else about worthiness. And you have to understand the Thessalonians here, they are undergoing some hard times. They are being persecuted for their faith. And so in verses four and five, they say, therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your endurance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions you endure. It is a clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you also are suffering. The Thessalonians will be counted worthy. It's like it's already happened in God's eyes. It's done. There are times when God says things about us that are ontologically true, that are true by nature, that are substantially true, but aren't necessarily true practically about us all the time. An example of this is our kids. We, uh, more recently, uh, specifically, have tried to be really intentional about the words that we use to describe our kids and how we communicate that to them, that they are noble, that they are good, that they are kind, that they are courageous. And we say that specifically for specific kids because they are things that we know to be true about them. And yeah, let me tell you, it's not true all the time about them. (laughs) They They aren't always noble. They aren't always kind. They aren't always courageous. All of those things. But the hope is, the more we say that to them, the more they're going to live it. Oh yeah, I am noble. I am kind. I am courageous. C.S. Lewis uh, says it this way, and this is my favorite nonfiction work that Lewis has written called The Problem of Pain. He says, because God already loves us, foundation established, God loves us. He must labor to make us lovable. 
What we would here now call our happiness is not the end God chiefly has in view. But when we are such as he can love without impediment, we shall, in fact, be happy. The emphasis in this prayer here is an encouragement to live what God has already said is true. You're worthy. Walk in that worthiness. And the encouragement is here, whether we've been deemed worthy or not, the encouragement is there because we need it. We don't always walk in a worthy manner. Or you do. I don't. I need the encouragement. I need the reminder that God has called me worthy, and so I should walk in a worthy manner. Because if I'm really honest, I'm not actually worthy, not worthy of God's love. I'm not worthy of his grace. But that's what makes God's grace so great. That's what makes his love so great. That it's not because of who I am, it's because of who God is. Otherwise, I wouldn't have a hope. And that doesn't mean, if I say I'm not actually worthy of God's love, doesn't mean I beat myself up about it, doesn't mean I tear myself down about it, doesn't mean I go into self-loathing about it, but it changes my experience of God's grace. It changes my experience of when his grace enters my life and disrupts my life and calls me to live differently. And this is something that Paul has emphasized again and again in a lot of his letters. We can just look at Ephesians. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. Philippians, just one thing. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Colossians, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. And then 1 Thessalonians, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the reciprocal nature of our faith. God's grace enters in and we respond to it and we start to take steps of walking in what he has already called us, which doesn't make us worthy, but it's living as God has already said is true. You're worthy, so walk in that worthiness. Again, this is the gospel. It freely enters our lives, but it disrupts our lives, and it changes us. It changes how we, how we live. This is a, just one example that came to my mind of this in my own life to try and think through uh, uh, a way that this can be experienced. Um, I already said earlier this morning, I didn't have a lot of discipline around homework, and maybe you've heard me say before, I dropped out of high school my sophomore year, and, and during that time in high school, uh, 
I had a teacher, Mrs. Shannon. And Mrs. Shannon uh, was a wonderful and brilliant teacher uh, who never pulled any punches and was always very direct in what she required and what she was asking. But she was also an incredibly compassionate person. And I think in me, she saw... uh, she saw a person who just didn't have a father and didn't know his way in life. And even though my, uh, my grade in her class was a 0.27, which I think, I don't know what you have to not do to have a grade that bad in a class. She still loved me and she introduced me to her husband and he taught me photography and how to uh, use a dark room and they had a dark room in their house so I would go over all the time and I would use their dark room and he would take me to the gym all the time with them and they'd have me over for meals and all this grace and love that was poured out on me while I'm abysmally failing this class and not honoring anything that this teacher is saying in the classroom. I felt bad about it, and I remember talking to her about it. I'm just like, I'm sorry, I'm not a good student. And uh, I'll never forget what she said. She's like, uh, she's like, well, um, I have total confidence in you, Mike, uh, and I'm not worried about it. You'll learn when you're ready to. And she didn't give anything, you know. She didn't. <laughs> she didn't give me a good grade. <laughs> She was truthful in all that she did and said, but she was also very loving and gracious. And it called me to want to honor more of what she was saying in the class. Okay, so what does life look like to walk worthy of the calling that, uh, that we have received? I think there's all kinds of things that could be said here anything that you can read in the Bible that informs our life of faith and and it affects our whole being, right? So it affects the way that we feel. It affects the way that we think. It affects our behavior when we're alone. It affects our interactions with other people. It affects our relationship with God. All of those things are part of us walking worthy of the calling. But here in this passage, there are just a couple of things that are connected specifically to walking worthy. So let's take a look again at verse 11, the second half of verse 11. God, that they're praying that God will, by his power, fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith. Every desire for goodness and the work of faith. Now, these two things are not extremely distinct. They're not really different things. I think they're saying the same thing again, but just using different language to kind of expand the idea of what's happening here. And it's kind of tough to think through in some ways. Like goodness, how do you really define goodness in a concrete manner? That is a philosophical debate. Here, the Greek uh, in this passage actually says, every good desire for goodness. So it's repetitive. All of your good desires for goodness, may they be fulfilled by God. Now, goodness, it's one of the three transcendentals. If you know anything about Greek philosophy, Aristotle, Plato, they talked about this. The three transcendentals are truth, beauty, and goodness. And they're saying these are like fundamental aspects of our humanity. So goodness is pretty core to who we are. 
but it's also one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's one of the things that God, through his Spirit, as we are walking with him, this is Paul writing to the Galatians, will begin to grow in our lives this aspect of goodness. And goodness is a part of our character, but specifically it's a part that benefits or creates betterment for another. So it's very actionable. We have good desires here that are mentioned, but they're good desires for goodness. That is, they're good desires that actually come about in an actionable way to bring about flourishing in somebody else's life. That's what goodness is. When you look toward the flourishing of somebody else's life. And at the heart of this, we've got to understand that God is good and that all goodness comes from him and that what he gives is good. That's James. All, good, all gifts from God are good gifts, right? And that goodness is what he has toward us. He doesn't have bad intentions toward us. He has good intentions toward us. He has goodness toward us. And that doesn't mean that he wants our happiness all the time, though, right? Not in the short term. This goes back to that C.S. Lewis quote. The good things that he has for us aren't always easy things. They aren't always pleasurable things that we want right now. But ultimately, they will lead to our happiness because the goodness is better than just the happiness alone. And in all of that goodness of who he is, he wants us to represent him well by taking that goodness to other people our good desires for goodness to others. There are a million examples of this happening in the church right now that I could give to you. I'll give you one, though, uh, and that's neighbor to neighbor, which happens once a month here on Saturday. Groups of people come here, and then they go out and serve people who are in need uh, in the community, particularly widows or uh, single moms, people who just need some help practically around the house. And recently, uh, just a concrete example for you, um, many of you may have known David Griggs. Uh, David was a longtime member of the church here. Uh, he led a lot in the church and had a big influence and effect on other people. And David passed away almost exactly a month ago today. Uh, and Marcia is sitting here right over there, uh, his wife. And not too long ago, a couple weeks ago, people from neighbor to neighbor were over at Marcia's house taking care of all the practical needs that she had around the house. That's looking towards somebody else's flourishing. It's a desire, a good desire for goodness in somebody else's life. It's the same kind of thing as a work of faith. Or another translation might put it, works prompted by faith. And when you have that element of faith in there, to me it communicates conviction, right? So works prompted by faith, are the, it's the conviction to do what is right in God's eyes. And this is something Paul's written about elsewhere as well, Ephesians chapter 2. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
We're created for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. When we enter into faith and God's grace disrupts our lives, he actually lays out things before us, good works that we can step into to look towards somebody else's flourishing in God's kingdom, not in my own kingdom, not for my own success, not for my kids' success, not for my own happiness, but for the flourishing of others and the good works that God has prepared ahead of time for me. This is what Amy did with the don't give up signs. She saw a need somewhere else and she stepped forward to provide human flourishing for other people. And let me tell you, there, you might be just thinking like, well, there's signs, that's great. There are countless stories that have come in about how people have been affected by those signs. Amy wrote a book about it, actually, and there's uh, all the stories, uh, not all of them, but some of them are in that book of people who saw a sign and wrote in and said, I thought my life was gonna end. And I saw that sign, and that really changed it for me. That was what I needed in that moment. That's working towards somebody else's flourishing. Now, all of this goodness and the works of faith, they're not on you. They're not on me to just do. That's what we see here at the, uh, in this prayer, going back to the end of verse 11. They're saying, they're praying that God would fulfill these desires and the good work, that God would fulfill them in power with his power specifically. It's God's power that's going to bring about something good from it. In the book of Philippians, Paul says, for it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. It's God who's doing this. And again, this is the reciprocal nature of our faith. It's God's power that is at work. It is God's spirit that is at work. It is God who is going to bring the fulfillment around. It is God who is going to do the enabling. It's God who's going to do all the heavy lifting, but it still requires us to step forward in faithfulness, to have a response to that disruptive grace and to walk worthy of the calling that God has given us. And I say that because God's power, what it's talking about here, isn't automatic. Because we can turn the volume down on God's power. We can turn the volume down on our engagement, our participation in this life of faith. Thankfully, though, God doesn't put the world on our shoulders, doesn't even put our salvation on our shoulders. He does ask us to respond, though. He does ask us for some aspect of reciprocity within this relationship. And the church is meant to be this spirit-filled community that goes outside the walls here 
fulfilling desires of goodness and works of faith all around. Sometimes those things are going to be received well. Sometimes they're not going to be received well. But we can't depend on how they're received in society at large as long as we're responding to God's grace and looking to have those good desires of goodness fulfilled as we're working these acts of faith as well. God will complete them. Ultimately, he's going to complete them in glory, which brings us to the last part here of the, of the prayer. Verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him. This first part right here, that the name of the Lord Jesus would be glorified is pretty formulaic. Like you, you see that all over in the New Testament letters. The name of Jesus is going to be glorified. He's going to return. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He will be on the throne. His kingdom will be established. That glory is going to happen. There is a future glory in that, but there's also a glory right now in the fulfilling of the desires of goodness, in the works of faith, it says the name of Jesus is glorified now. So when the church steps into those, Jesus gets glorified now, which means we're honoring his name as the benefactor, as in, again, reciprocity. He has given us freely, and so we respond by honoring his name in all that we do and how we represent him. But that's not the only aspect of reciprocity here in terms of glory. Because what does it say? It says that the name of Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him. This kind of reminds me of what Jesus said to the disciples When he had gone out, Jesus said, now the son of man, that's Jesus, is glorified and God, the father, is glorified in him. So the father is glorified by the son. The son is glorified by the father. And then we are invited in to that reciprocal glory to share in it as well, which means we are going to be like Jesus. We're not going to be God like Jesus but we are going to be like Jesus. What we will experience when that glory comes should shake us to the core. It is gonna be an incredible thing that we can't fully imagine, but that is the calling that we have received. I read this passage a couple of weeks ago, I think, but I'll read just a part of it again. Colossians 3. When the Messiah, when the Christ who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We're going to be revealed with him in glory. God has said it as if it's already done. That's going to happen. And each day now, we have an opportunity to walk in that to walk in that calling, to respond to God, to live in a reciprocal relationship with him. 
So let me leave you with just a few takeaways here on walking worthy. First one, feel the love. That is, make sure the foundation is laid for you, that you understand how much you are loved by God, that you understand that his grace is freely offered to you, and that is how you are called worthy. Not by what you do, but by who God is. He has said you are worthy. Feel the love. Second, take the exam. All right, once you're feeling the love, and you got that foundation laid, and within the context of that love, examine your life. What are the aspects where you say, this is not me walking worthy of the calling that God has given me, the glory that I'm going to experience with God. This is not part of that. I can turn away from that by the power of the Spirit, and I can turn toward God. We've all got those things in our lives. They go like this, right? You think you got rid of them, and then they come back. It's a daily exam that we take. And finally, turn up the volume. Turn up the volume. We got some hands raised in the back. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Turn up the volume so that you're fully participating in the beautiful music that God is creating in his kingdom. He asks everybody to participate in that music and to turn the volume up loud. For everybody in the church to be a part of that, fulfilling the goodness of the desires and works of faith. We got to turn up the volume, not down. Let me pray. Lord, we look to you. We love you. We need you for everything. You give us life. Jesus, you are our life. Thank you for the grace that you give us each day. Thank you that you have called us worthy through Jesus. Thank you that we will experience glory with you. Thanks, God, that even on our worst days, when we're falling apart, you have called us worthy. You have given us your spirit. I pray you'd pick us up, help us to turn to you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have given us. We trust you, we love you, we rely on your love. It's unshakable, unearned, but always there, love. Amen.